Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce House Benson. Three days ago, a long, thoughtful, and highly informative piece appeared in the Washington Post titled The Revolt of the Christian Homeschoolers, written by Peter Jameson. It examines the homeschooling movement, specifically why some students who were homeschooled now regret that homeschooling, and why they have chosen to educate their own children in public schools instead. The article particularly focuses on the experience of Erin and Christina Beale, homeschoolers who decided not to homeschool their children. To put that decision in context, you should realize that the Beals live in Virginia, where in the fall of 2022, 57,000 children were homeschooled. That represents a 28% increase from only three years earlier. Perhaps the most memorable line from that piece is this from Aaron, who takes aim at the very purpose of homeschooling. People who think that public schools are indoctrinating don't know what indoctrination is. We were indoctrinated. It's not even comparable. In other words, the point of homeschooling is to make sure that children do get indoctrinated, but in a different way. Of course, the very concept of homeschooling raises basic questions about what it means to be indoctrinated. Are the public schools indoctrinating students? Do conservative Christian schools indoctrinate their kids? Here's one of the comments in response to the article. Everyone is indoctrinating on all sides. The only question is, if you want your children indoctrinated to be communist, nihilists at the public school, or if you want to teach them your values by teaching them at home or at a private school that shares your values. There are many problems with this quotation, but the most serious is that the writer simply equates education with indoctrination. I don't think that's true at all. While it is the case that children have to be taught something, that something doesn't necessarily have to be presented as you will either believe this or will disown you, or even something milder like this is clearly the right view and those others are wrong and not even worth considering. By the way, those are definitely examples of indoctrination. For this episode, I'm going to do three things. Go back first to the historically influential essay by Immanuel Kant titled, What is Enlightenment? Secondly, consider Michel Foucault's response to that essay in an essay with the same title. And three, apply that discussion to the issue of homeschooling. By the way, I will be using the term indoctrination in this episode. I assume that most listening are aware that some conservative Christians speak rather derisively of what they call grooming, and they accuse the LGBTQ plus community in engaging in this practice. That charge has virtually no basis in actual practice. But more problematically, the term grooming can refer to a wide variety of practices, including such things as tutoring, coaching, mentoring, preparing, and tidying up. I would find it interesting to see a discussion of grooming in those terms because I think it would show that the charge of grooming is a very odd charge. 
Who exactly is against tutoring, coaching, mentoring, etc.? And if grooming is so bad, why are religious conservatives all in favor of grooming their children as they see fit? So let's leave that term alone. Instead, I want to use the term indoctrination because it's more precise and thus it's easier to discuss. Before we get started, though, let me remind you that OnBecoming has a presence on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. We invite your questions, your comments, your suggestions for the podcast. Please send those to onbecomingpodcast, all one word, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, perhaps you'll consider supporting the podcast. The overall goal of Unbecoming is to explore the forces that shape us. Perhaps you've already come to realize what I'm a hoping to accomplish in this podcast, to put into question many of our assumptions. But that examination of concepts and assumptions is not designed to negate or to be simply destructive. Instead, I'm hoping to help you question these assumptions in order to become better at being human. If any of what I've been saying resonates with you, I invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. You'll see that there are various levels of support possible. Friend of the pod, student of the academy, philosopher in training, disillusioned scholar, and the final level, overachiever. Any of these levels will get you access to the Discord server, but each level provides access to additional resources. The student at the academy level gives you access to bi-weekly member-only content. Philosopher in Training gives you that, plus monthly interactive live streams. If you sign up on the Disillusioned Scholar level, you'll even receive a copy of my book, Graven Ideologies. And the Overachiever level includes a one-hour-per-month Zoom session with me in which you can ask questions or make any comments you like. I hope that you'll at least consider supporting the podcast. In 1784, Kant publishes a short essay titled An Answer to the Question, What is Enlightenment? People like Kant consider themselves to be enlightened, and so the Berlinische Monatschrift, which would roughly translate in English as the Berlin Monthly, ran something like a contest to see who could best answer this question. For those with recently discovered enlightened sight, but still need of clearer focus, Kant provides sharp clarification. The essence of enlightenment, so he tells us, can be distilled into a motto, a Walschbuch in German, Sapper Aude. According to Kant, Sapper Aude can be translated in more explicit and practical terms as have the courage to use your own reason. Kant opens his text with these words, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Then he immediately goes on to tell us, Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. Moreover, this inability, says Kant, is self-incurred, Whenever we fail to have the courage to act or to think on our own, 
thus consuggest supra outer, as an appropriate enlightenment motto. In attempting to define the term enlightenment, Kant provides us with a helpful way of viewing the enlightenment as a period, whether we're speaking narrowly of the German enlightenment or more broadly so as to include the French, English, and Scottish enlightenments. The focus is clearly on thinking for oneself. In each of these cases, it gets worked out differently, but the goal of independent thought is clearly a central aspect. On the one hand, there is something prima facie convincing about all of this. Kant's plea for maturity is one which seems to have a good deal of merit. Who indeed would wish to wallow in the throes of immaturity if it is the case that true maturity requires only that we rustle up the courage to decide on our own? On the other hand, there is a somewhat audacious tinge to all of this. Kant's nomination for the Enlightenment motto is a quotation from Horace, and it can be literally translated as dare to be wise or dare to know. Picking up on the etymological connection between aude and the French word audace, or the English term audacity, Michel Foucault's translation can be rendered into English as have the courage, the audacity to know. Putting this in a German idiom, we might say that maturity for Kant requires a certain degree of frechheit, cheekiness, something my grandmother accused me of being when I was a child. Whether this audacious ideal is good or bad is open to question, but its significance is not. Modern philosophy, in that loose sense of the term, can be described as that philosophy for which the question of enlightenment is a very pressing issue. As Kant puts it, modern philosophy is the philosophy that is attempting to answer the question raised so imprudently, what is enlightenment? Moreover, along with this particular question goes a particular attitude. Instead of taking modernity as designating a temporal period, Foucault claims that it is characterized by a desire to escape. Foucault points out that, and now I'm quoting, Kant defines Aufklärung, enlightenment, in an almost entirely negative way as an Ausgang, that's the German word for exit, an exit or a way out. To become enlightened, one must come out from under a yoke. But if modernity is essentially the search for an exit, from what are we escaping? In essence, the escape is from the yoke of the past. To be enlightened, matured, and thoroughly modern necessitates a break with tradition. That's Foucault's quote. Although the word modern ostensibly means no more than current, the way we tend to use the term shows that its normative connotations are actually far more significant than its descriptive function. When we call something modern, we're usually not merely saying that it's current, Usually, we imply that it is also better. What connects us to the Enlightenment, then, what makes us kindred spirits, is not faithfulness to doctrinal elements, as Foucault puts it, but precisely this attitude, an attitude which Gadamer sums up as, we can know better. At the heart of this break with tradition, then, is the refusal to be subject to authority. Instead, we must 
ourselves, each and every one of us, become our own authorities. I must allow my own reason to decide for me rather than accept the word of someone else. It should be clear here that Kant leaves little room for recognition of authority as being legitimate. Instead, the ideal of maturity is taken to be a state in which we decide everything on our own. Looking to an authority is automatically taken to be suspect. Closely connected to this conception of maturity is the issue of freedom. I think it is not incidental that Kant likens immaturity to a ball and chain. To be mature is to be free. The Enlightenment version of maturity, then, is that of coming out from under the yoke of everything except for reason. What Kant has in mind is pure self-determination. Although Kant often speaks of what we call positive freedom, the power of freedom to do something good, here he is giving us a negative view of freedom, the throwing off of any constraints upon one's thought or one's action. It is this that I see as being a particularly modern view of freedom. And that leads me to what I take to be the hallmarks of modernity. The first is simply this idea of thinking for oneself, the very idea that one can think for oneself. In a moment, I will be pointing out what I take to be the problem with such a goal. But you can see how, at least on the face of it, encouraging people or kids or students to think for themselves is something worth encouraging. The second aspect of modern or enlightenment thinking is that it assumes that human reason is so powerful that soon enough human beings will understand everything there is to know. Do I really need to provide a refutation of that view? Isn't it clear that at least so far human beings have not gotten even close to understanding everything? While we are ever closer to developing AI, which may kill us, we don't even understand AI all that well. Moreover, what we are discovering is that the more we learn about the world, the more mysterious it becomes. Scientists now think that 85% of the universe is composed of dark matter, which is not part of the electromagnetic field and thus does not give off or absorb any electromagnetic radiation. In other words, the vast majority of the universe is, at least for now, off-limits to us. I could multiply examples like this, but I think that should be sufficient. You might think that Foucault would hardly endorse the modern project. Yet he speaks in very negative tones, saying that modernity leaves us with a feeling of novelty and vertigo in the face of the passing moment. He makes reference to the poet Baudelaire, and Foucault points out that to be modern, to reject the past, means that one is constantly faced with the prospect of self-creation or self-invention. As Foucault says, modern man for Baudelaire, He's not the man who goes off to discover himself, his secrets, and his hidden truth. He's the man who tries to invent himself. This modernity does not liberate man in his own being. It compels him to face the task of producing himself. Modernity, then, for Foucault, has a decidedly negative aspect. Rather than accept Kant's call to maturity at face value, Foucault thinks that we need to take Kant at his word and think for ourselves, which means for Foucault that we should not accept the implicit choice which Kant, in effect, gives us too hastily. 
as it turns out, Kant's escape is itself problematic. On the one hand, it takes a form that is too simple. Foucault characterizes this choice as being, you either accept the Enlightenment and remain within the tradition of its rationalism, or else you critique the Enlightenment and try to escape from its principles of rationality. In effect, Kant could be interpreted, and I think there's some validity to this reading, as setting up a version of his rationality as definitive, and then telling us that we must choose between it and irrationality. At least this is what Foucault thinks. However, rather than being either for or against the Enlightenment, Foucault suggests that we should refuse everything that might present itself in the form of a simplistic and authoritarian alternative. Not only should we not submit to this alternative because it is too simple, Foucault also thinks that there's nothing like a way out. On the one hand, the Enlightenment hope of escape could never become a reality because fleeing from the past is only possible to a very limited degree. We are far more shaped by the past than Kant seems to think. On the other hand, as beings whose very ways of thinking have been formed by the Enlightenment, we cannot escape Kant's either-or choice simply by rejecting it out of hand. Instead, Foucault proposes that we, quote, try to proceed with the analysis of ourselves as beings who are historically determined, to a certain extent, by the Enlightenment. What I take Foucault to mean here is that one of the most important ways in which we can consider what it means to be children of the Enlightenment is to examine the ways in which even the alternatives which we assume to be available to us have themselves been shaped by Enlightenment thought. And that point gets us back to the topic of indoctrination. Both Christina and Aaron Bell were homeschooled, and now I'm quoting, both had been raised to believe that public schools were tools of demonic social order, government indoctrination camps devoted to the propagation of lies and the subversion of Christian families. They had also been taught that public schools were places where children are bullied or raped in the bathroom or taught to hate Jesus. This is a kind of unusual view of what public schools are attempting to accomplish. I'm not even sure what to make of the claim that schools are designed to promote a demonic social order. What exactly would that be? Would it mean teaching pupils to worship Satan? Would it be capitalism? Well, no, because evangelicals are usually quite keen on capitalism, even though I don't think Jesus was ever on board the capitalist train. I suspect very few teachers ever have reason to speak of Satan, let alone trying to figure out what a demonic social order might be and then trying to indoctrinate students with such beliefs. The idea that teachers would go out of their way to make sure children hated Jesus just seems so ludicrous that no answer is necessary. But I worry here that the real subjects of indoctrination are not the kids attending public schools, but the kids who are being kept away from the public schools. As the Post article notes, homeschooled kids have, and now I'm quoting, attended Ivy League schools and won national spelling bees, 
But then the article goes on to point out that homeschool kids have also, and now I'm quoting, been the victims of child abuse and severe neglect. Some are taught using the classics of ancient Greece, others with Nazi propaganda. Now, just in case you're wondering, are there really parents who've been teaching their kids Nazi propaganda? There's a link to another post story from February with the title, Ohio Schools Are Investigating Pro-Nazi Homeschoolers. As to teaching the kids the classics, are parents really aware of what Plato and Aristotle believe? Do they understand the significant differences between, say, ancient Romans and Greeks and today's evangelicals? I have the same question whenever I hear about classical schools. In case you're wondering if this is a thing, yes, it really is. There is something called the Association of Classical Christian Schools that promotes a great books curriculum. But I suspect that students are only given very selective information regarding the figures studied. There's not likely a discussion of the role of homosexuality in ancient Greek culture, nor the fact that both ancient Greek and Roman culture were brutal in fighting wars and killing innocent civilians. Jameson says this about the homeschooling movement. That movement, led by deeply conservative Christians, saw homeschooling as a way of life, a conscious rejection of contemporary ideas about biology, history, gender equality, and the role of religion in American government. The biology part of that quote is probably self-explanatory. Biologists believe that we exist due to a process called evolution, which is something that conservative Christians often simply reject. You should know that many homeschooled kids are taught only about creationism, the idea that God created the world in just six days. Just to be clear, creationism is not merely the idea that the creation story in Genesis should be read literally. It bills itself as creation science. That is a different but equally scientific explanation as evolution. So powerful that it demonstrates that evolution didn't occur or just partially you know, to develop the different species that God created on those first six days. To deal with fossils, creation scientists maintained that God planted them in the ground to test our faith. I refer to this as the pottery barn God, who designs everything to look old. The problem with history is a little bit more complicated, though I suspect that the most important part is about arguing that the American Civil War had to do with states' rights, rather than, well, you know, that other thing, slavery. Of course, if you live in some states in the South, the public schools will treat the Civil War in exactly the same way. You realize that even in some conservative Christian schools, students are not really taught much about evolution, except as something that's man's wisdom, and thus it needs to be rejected. Jamison sees his movement as having very significant consequences. As he puts it, over decades they have eroded state regulations, ensuring that parents who homeschool face little oversight in much of the country. More recently, they have inflamed the nation's culture wars, fueling attacks on public school lessons about race and gender with the politically potent language of parental rights. 
Here we come to a particularly thorny question. What rights do parents have in terms of how their children are educated? The homeschooling movement folks make a great deal of this right, arguing that it is something close to an absolute right. And you might think, well, those are the kids' parents, and so they should get to decide. But the reality is that curricula are usually put together by people who have a broad sense of what education is supposed to accomplish. Namely, they've actually studied education. Alas, a big part of education is allowing children to discover new things, new places, new ideas, and things they just had no idea about beforehand. It's also a place where kids are encouraged to broaden rather than narrow their horizons. Put otherwise, parents don't have any particular expertise as to what education requires and usually have no training in teaching. However, the supposed rights of parents, to whatever extent those exist, seem to leave out another right, the rights of students. You might find it interesting that those who are most in favor of greater accountability of parents and what they teach are the homeschoolers themselves who have formed the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. A representative of that group points out that, and here I'm quoting, as an adult I can say, no, what happened to me as a child was wrong. In other words, these homeschoolers are in a good position to decide whether their education was sufficient and helpful. I've already talked about the fact that Jinger Duggar Vuolo has published a book in which she strongly criticizes Bill Gothard, someone we've talked about already on this podcast. But here's another example. Aaron had grown up believing Christians could outpopulate theists and Muslims by scorning birth control. Christina had been taught the Bible-based arithmetic necessary to calculate the age of the universe at less than 8,000 years old. Their education was one in which dinosaurs were herded aboard Noah's Ark, and in which the penalty for doubt or disobedience was swift. As one of the comments to the article puts it, Anyone who's been involved in the homeschool associations have seen this. There are more children than anyone realizes being brought up in echo chambers, undereducated, and kept away from anyone different from them. I want to spend a little time with this issue of punishment. As the article makes clear, even as adults, both Aaron and Christina flinch when they remember their parents' literal adherence to the words of the Old Testament, and here we're quoting, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Rod gets defined in different ways, a belt, rubber hose, a wooden paddle. The ones with the holes cut out of them are the ones that hurt the worst. I know this because of the principal of the conservative Christian school I attended, used one of those. Aaron thinks back to being disciplined in this way, what homeschoolers refer to as spankings. But he believes that the word doesn't convey the terror that he had as a child being struck several times a week 
with what he describes as a shortened broomstick for disobeying commands or failing to pay attention. He still remembers being a child waiting outside of his parents' bedroom to be summoned in by his mother for a spanking. He had worried that some of his failings would be bad enough to get what he termed killer bee spankings. Those were when he was beaten without the benefit of any clothing between the rod and the rear. He worked hard to stay still while being hit. As Jameson puts it, all of these sensations and emotions seeped into his bones, creating a great conviction that those who fail to obey authority pay an awful price. Here's what Aaron had to say about these spankings. For a long time, I wondered why I was so unable to think for myself as an environment, he says today, attributing the shortcoming to learning that even starting to think or disagree with authorities leads to pain, leads to physical and real pain that you cannot escape. Without going into detail, my own upbringing has distinct points of similarities, particularly regarding spanking. As I think back to my childhood, it seems to me that there were a lot of spankings. While some of those spankings had to do with misbehaving, though, dear listener, you must realize that in comparison to all the bad things kids do, my transgressions were pretty minimal. But some of those spankings were for and now I'm using the precise terminology, talking back. Eventually, I learned that if I had come to a different conclusion from that of my parents, it was just best to keep quiet about that. But think about it for a moment. If you have to beat or spank your child in order to get them to believe whatever it is you want them to believe, doesn't that count as indoctrination? In previous episodes, we've talked about how Chinese communist officials were in charge of getting people to think differently. One of their methods was that of physical violence. You might want to argue that what the Chinese communists, in terms of physical abuse, did was far worse than anything done by homeschooling parents, and of course you'd be correct, at least generally. However, the method of violence is, alas, still the same. You might think this point about physical violence is overblown, but I don't think it is. If anything, it's not taken seriously enough. For physical violence is at the very heart of the homeschooling movement, at least of the fundamentalist or evangelical variety. The Beals had been given a book titled To Train Up a Child by two well-known self-proclaimed experts on education, Michael and Debbie Pearl. The pearls seem to prefer hitting children with belts, tree branches, and what they call other instruments of love. Among their training methods is this. As soon as a child is able to crawl, the child should be placed near some sort of desirable object with the express instruction that they are not supposed to touch it. Then the child is spanked with a switch whenever they do try and touch it. Another example comes from the curriculum, the parenting seminar Aaron and Christina took with a pastor. There is a long list from Proverbs about the importance of using the rod. But the part that's most shocking is the explanation for the punishment. And here I'm quoting, The use of the rod is for the purpose of breaking the child's will. One way to tell if this has happened is 
if they can look you in the eyes after being disciplined and ask for forgiveness. The point of physical punishment then is to break the child's will. The seminar handout also distinguishes between active rebellion, in which the child says no or disobeys or throws temper tantrums, and passive rebellion, exemplified by forgetting to do chores, or doing the right things with a bad attitude, or complaining, or eye-rolling. Christina Beale's response to such methods is this. It's specifically a system that is set up to hide the abuse, to make the children invisible, to strip them of any capability of getting help, and not just in a physical way. At some point, you become so mentally imprisoned you don't even realize you need help. Let's focus on the abuse part first. Christina's point is there's no mechanism in place to make sure parents aren't beating or in other ways abusing their children. Since the parents are the ones perpetrating the abuse, children don't really have any power to get them to stop. But even more, the dynamics of the situation are such that getting help becomes difficult even to define. Here's what I mean. If you've already told your children that the world is a terrible place in which children are being socialized into the de demonic social order, why would you think that going to one of those demonic social order people who are part of this bad world could possibly help you? They are labeled as the problem, and the parents are labeled as the solution. But then consider what she goes on to say. The mental imprisonment is so effective that one eventually doesn't even see it as imprisonment, and so wouldn't even know that they need help. One important difference between physical abuse and psychological abuse is the former is much more obvious. Your parents hit you, and neither you nor they think that nothing happened. Both of you are well aware of what happened. But if your parents withhold information from you, or tell you things that are wrong, or even apply that something might happen if you don't obey, then things become much less straightforward. How would you know what you don't know? How would you, if you were a homeschooled kid, how would you be able to tell if you were being gaslit? For Aaron, it was only when he finally had children that he came face to face with the problem. He says, when it came time for me to hit my kids, that was the first independent thought I remember having. And the thought was this, this can't be right, I'll just skip that part. But of course, one of the problems with indoctrination is that if one piece of it comes undone, others are likely to follow. Aaron claims that it's like having the rug pulled out from under your feet. All of reality is up for grabs. It was at this point in his life that he started to read about evolution and cosmology. It was also at this point when he told his parents that he didn't think he was a believer. And here's where the typical evangelical response comes in. Aaron's mother thought the following, and here I'm quoting, I don't think Aaron is going to be wrestled into heaven with good arguments. I think this is likely about his response to hard things in his life. I think he needs to come face to face with God himself and bow before him in recognition of his own sin and need for a savior. 
I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this kind of response. Instead of thinking that Aaron might have actually started to think for himself, the mother simply believes that the problem is spiritual in nature. Aaron no longer believes he's in the thralls of sin and so needs to be convicted in his heart of evil doing. I'm particularly emphasizing this point because I saw something like this happen over and over again with my students. Like Aaron, many students arrive at evangelical colleges being already indoctrinated. For many, the first semester is the hardest. For often, students are being told various things, well, about history or literature or philosophy or theology or geometry or biology or a whole lot of other things that are either completely new or worse, greatly at odds with what they've been told by their parents and pastors. I remember one student who said on the last day of my intro course, when I often ask students to tell me what they've learned. Here's what he said. I've learned in this course that much of what I was taught in my conservative Christian high school is untrue. But know that I'm talking about the students whose parents were at least okay with sending their children to college. Yes, it was a very conservative college, but you have to keep in mind that even sending a child to college, no matter how Christian or conservative, is already a significant break from homeschooling. In other words, I was teaching the students who were at least willing to attend college, as opposed to the students who simply didn't even want to expose themselves to other thoughts, even in a conservative religious environment. After Aaron had expressed his doubts about what he thought, Christina went through her own phase of questioning. However, in her case, that led her to study both spiritual abuse and the history of Christian nationalism. As a result of that research, she no longer read the Bible in a literal way and came to see that the value structure she had inherited was deeply patriarchal. But she was also faced with those instructions that the pastor had presented for dealing with children who disobey. In the margins of that handout, Christine had written, I don't think I can be a parent, followed by a frowning face. Then she writes, It makes me sad because it just feels like you have to be hardened to be a parent. But the effects of asking questions were felt more generally. One of the things that Aaron and Christina discovered was that there were many things about the world they had never learned. Although it's a pretty minor matter, Aaron, for instance, had never heard of Groundhog Day, the actual day, not the, not the movie, though he probably hadn't heard of the movie either, and thus had never heard of Puxatawney Phil. That's not exactly a huge lacuna in one's education, but it's an example that could be multiplied many times over for homeschoolers. The story ends with Aaron and Christina surveying the school against which their parents had warned. When they went to the library, this is what they found. It was the second day of Black History Month, and the shelves were set up with displays of books about the Underground Railroad, soprano Ellis Shepard, and Vice President Harris. Where the walls reached the ceiling, a mural was painted with Mary Poppins and Winnie the Pooh. Aaron and Christina stood shoulder to shoulder surveying the room. This was the belly of the beast, the environment their parents had worked to save them from. 
The author uses this example to say something like, see, it's not so bad, and of course it's not. But I worry that some evangelicals, particularly of the homeschooling variety, might be disturbed even to see Black History Month celebrated. I want to end with some reflections on how Aaron and Christina's situation connects to what Kant and Foucault write about enlightenment. For Kant, not using your own reasoning is being immature. To a certain degree, that's correct. Yet I think Foucault has a much more nuanced discussion of this aspect than does Kant. It's not that Foucault thinks that Kant doesn't go far enough. Instead, he believes that what Kant is calling for is much less easy to accomplish than Kant appears to think it is. What Foucault realizes is that even the choices that we are given, the choices that are made available to us, are themselves the result of other choices that have already been made, sometimes by us, more often by others. In other words, we may actually have more choices open to us than what it might seem to be. This is why Foucault talks about doing the patient work, trying as much as possible to make sense of the situation in which we find ourselves, and then trying to, to figure out what to do in light of that. Kant is adamant that we are not truly free unless we make our own decisions. But this is harder than one might think, for a very particular reason. As a species, we really don't have that much experience thinking for ourselves. What I mean by that is that our thinking is so affected by the thinking of others that there is no strong sense of thinking for oneself. By strong sense, I mean something like, I will think on my own without the influence of anyone else. Having written on issues concerning the creation of art, I'm familiar with artists who say they don't want to study the artistic tradition lest they be unduly influenced. But even though art is supposed to be one of the things that people do for themselves in which they express their own creativity and they show that their work is different, much of that narrative is an exaggeration. You can't really become an artist without any exposure to artistic tradition. And however much an artist might be different, that can only be in a very limited sense. Put otherwise, even artists whose role is to be creative only create their art in relation to the world around them and, of course, to other art. But is it possible to have education without indoctrination? I think so, though I need to make two points regarding that belief. The first of those is simply that we can avoid indoctrination by presenting students with the various possible ways of thinking about an issue, as well as presenting those ways as fairly and honestly as possible. The goal should be something like this. When I describe the view of the person that I don't agree with, I measure my success by how likely it is that such a person the very person that I've just described, would be willing to say, okay, that's a fair description of what I believe. If students are presented with the various positions in a charitable light, then I don't think that's indoctrination. Indoctrination is constituted, I think, by A, deliberately concealing possible alternative views, and or B, presenting the other views in such a way that makes them seem as stupid as possible. For instance, in teaching intro students, we consider various views on a whole lot of things. 
My goal is to present those views in an even-handed manner, neither making them seem better or worse than they actually are. Of course, my students sometimes found that some of the views that they had been taught were wrong now started to make more sense to them. Put another way, the goal of such presentations was to provide an even-handed description of the view. Some professors go out of their way to make it unclear what views they actually hold, and I think that's admirable. It forces students to make up their own minds. Of course, part of being a responsible educator is that you make clear what the consequences of accepting any given view might be. I have to confess that I've gone out of my way to show that, for instance, relativism, either aesthetic or moral, is not a good position. Yet, I try very hard to make sure that I've presented opposing views as fairly as possible. But that goal is also about being fair to students who deserve to hear the various possible views on offer if they're going to make a real choice. That's what student rights are about. Even students who came to see me because they had questions about Christianity, which were usually more questions about evangelicalism, I always made it clear that my job wasn't to argue them back into Christianity, though I did have and definitely used arguments, but instead my job was to help them figure out what it was that they believed. Let's just say that some of my colleagues weren't completely happy about that. But as I would say to students, you need to figure out what you believe. This discussion is not about what I believe, but about what you believe. And I should add that I made a special point of noting that certain other beliefs are held by good Christian folk, not some invention of the devil. Here's the other point that needs to be mentioned. For those of you who listen to a number of episodes, you know that Gadamer is a philosopher on whom I draw constantly. What becomes clear in the Enlightenment essay is that Kant thinks that the self is capable of pure self-determination. But to what extent can we use our own reason without the guidance of another, to quote Kant? Clearly that statement depends on what we mean by guidance. If guidance means something like parents basically commanding their children to believe something, then obviously maturity requires that we get past that point. But if guidance is used in a weaker sense, in which we listen to the advice of others and weigh its merits, then thinking and acting without any guidance is impossible, and I think highly undesirable. In thinking about anything, we look constantly to others for guidance, and this is true even when we think of acting on our own. I want to suggest that this sort of view of the self is both freer and more mature. Whereas modernity is characterized by its view of freedom as an escape, acknowledging that authority and tradition can at least in principle be supplements to reason actually turns out to be a freeing sort of position. Of course, in recognizing the, the legitimacy of authority, we are in effect taking a step that seems similar to the adolescent who finally comes to the place of acknowledging a debt to parents and teachers. The critical moment of adolescence is not completely lost, but it is balanced by the realization that even the ways in which one is critical are themselves, at least partly and often wholly, 
based upon one's own tradition. Yet recognizing that we are also dependent upon tradition for what we know and how we know should help us to see that the hope of using our reason all on our own is pure fantasy. None of us actually think that way. And we can never be mature if we do not learn to recognize the limitations of ourselves and our own understanding. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us next week.